What is a caucus race, said Alice. Not that she wanted much to know, but the dodo had paused, as if it thought that somebody ought to speak. Why, said the dodo, the best way to explain is to do it. First it marked out a race course, in a sort of circle. The exact shape doesn't matter, it said. And then all the party were placed along the course, here and there. There was no one, two, three, and away. But they began running when they liked, and left off when they liked, so that it was not easy to know when the race was over. However, when they had been running about a half hour or so, the dodo suddenly called out, The race is over! And they all crowded round it, panting and asking, But who has won? This question the dodo could not answer without a great deal of thought, and it sat for a long time with one finger pressed upon its forehead while it, the rest waited in silence. At last the dodo said, Everybody has won! All must have prizes! This quote from Alice in Wonderland gives away the special nature of today's show. We're foregoing our usual format to cover one of the quirkiest aspects of the American electoral process, the Iowa caucus. If you've ever wondered what the difference is between a caucus and a primary, or why Iowa always gets to go first every election year, just stay tuned. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, or a little British girl who chased the white rabbit through the looking glass, let's get ready to find out just what is a caucus race. Welcome to the first episode of the Ballot Ball Podcast in 2016. I'm your host, James Murphy, along with my dog Seamus, the official mascot of the sport of Ballot Ball. Hopefully you've already subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or visited BallotBall.com. Now it's fitting that this is the new year because, in a very real way, the 2016 presidential election is just beginning. Forget everything you've heard about the polls or the fundraising totals you've seen. At this point in 2008, Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton enjoyed huge leads in their respective races but things didn't go well for them once the voters started, you know, actually voting. Most news outlets are going to focus on the horse race and put the emphasis on who's going to win or lose, but that's not what we're going to, get, what we're going to do today. The idea behind Ballot Ball is that elections are a sport, and so we're going to look at the Iowa caucus in that way. Just how is this game different from other elections you know about? Unlike a primary or any other election you've heard of, voters don't just show up, check a box, and then go home. Caucus-goers spend hours at their precinct places debating and cajoling their neighbors to support their favorite candidates. In many cases, they don't have the benefit of the secret ballot and have to put their money where their mouth is and stand with their chosen candidate for all their neighbors to see. Compared to this, the New Hampshire primary that happens a week later is a bit of a snooze fest, with voters proceeding normally behind a curtain to pull a lever before going home and watching the results on TV. In Iowa, you stay until the game is won. Now, the rules for the Democrats and the Republicans are a bit different. They hold their caucuses in different places and even count up the results in different ways. But before we get to all that, we have to address the question that I'm sure is on everybody's mind. Why the hell does Iowa always get to go first? I mean, come on. It's a small state in the middle of the country. Why does it always get to be the first state to impact the presidential election? When I started looking into this, I thought the answer was going to be some dark conspiracy between plutocrat corn growers and the Illuminati. Surprisingly, though, it has more to do with the Vietnam War and a lack of hotel rooms in Des Moines in 1972. No joke. You see, before the 1972 election, political parties generally selected their candidates without really bothering to ask voters what they thought. They'd hold caucuses and primaries at the last minute, but these would be poorly attended. The real business of choosing candidates wouldn't happen until that summer, when all the party delegates would go to the conventions. Today, we think of the summer party conventions as boring, three-day speechathons that end with balloons falling from the ceiling. 
but they used to be much more important and exciting. But everything changed after the tumultuous election of 1968. Back then, just like today, New Hampshire had the first primary, while while the Iowa caucus didn't happen until much later in the year. As President Johnson began to prepare to run for re-election, New Hampshire voters dealt him a crippling blow. They voted for anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy instead of the sitting president. This embarrassment spurred Johnson to decline to run for re-election, and the Democrats never recovered. The party decided to change its rules for the next election in 1972 so that this wouldn't happen again. They decided to advertise the primaries and caucuses in advance. They thought that the only reason McCarthy had won was because so few people had voted. The hardcore anti-war activists had been able to swing the vote to McCarthy. They thought if more people showed up, it would moderate the vote. And in a lot of ways, they got just what they wanted. More people started voting in the primaries after that year. In Iowa, the popularity became so great that organizers feared there wouldn't be enough hotel rooms for all the party officials that would be needed to conduct the caucus. They decided to alleviate the burden by backing the date up, out of the busy summer months, and back into the dead of winter. The Republicans quickly followed suit, and all of a sudden, Iowa voted before New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshireites were presumably upset because they had long been the first event in the primary calendar. They even had it written into their state constitution that they always get to hold the first primary. Since Iowa holds a caucus, they got around a loophole. And I don't have any evidence to back up this next claim, and maybe it goes back into conspiracy territory, but it certainly seems like an intentional swipe at New Hampshire by the Democratic Party. It's almost as if the party said, hmm, so you want to mess up our chances of winning the general election by dominating Eugene McCarthy, huh? How about we take away your first voting privileges and see how you like it? This idea brings up the second important question when it comes to the Iowa caucus. No, really, why the hell does Iowa get to go first? Why should such a small state have such a big influence over the election? Why don't we have a bigger, more representative state like California or Texas go first? Better yet, why don't we have a nationwide primary where everyone votes at the same time? How is this constitutional? To put it bluntly, it isn't constitutional. The primaries are nowhere in the Constitution, neither are political parties. George Washington famously warned against the, quote, frightful despotism that would result from political parties as each would take turns dominating the other one when they achieved power. The whole campaign was different in Washington's time. It was considered rude and beneath the office of the presidency to even admit you wanted the job. Going out on the trail to greet voters and ask for voters' support would have made GW's powdered wig fly off in exasperation. But times are different now. Not only do do you campaign like hell to get votes and raise money, but there is even sports-like jargon to mark your progress. In Iowa, Rick Santorum is getting lauded for doing something called the Full Grassley, which means he has visited all 99 counties to ask for votes. The name comes from Iowa Senator Charles Grassley, who reportedly does this every election cycle. So like it or lump it, Iowa goes first. Political parties get to make their own rules and schedule their own debates, conventions, and fundraising. This is an important point when we consider the current candidacy of so many quote-unquote outsider candidates. Whether or not you like Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, or Dr. Ben Carson, it's important to realize that these outsiders have to contend with a political machine that can actively work against them if they're not careful. In many ways, it's helpful to these outsider candidates to compete in a small state like Iowa. If we had a national primary, it's likely that only the front-running candidates who raise the most money would be able to compete. There are over 3,000 counties in America, compared to 99 in Iowa. I don't think either Rick Santorum or Charles Grassley could visit them all. We'll cover more about the party apparatus and rulemaking in future episodes. If you think caucuses are interesting, just wait until we get to superdelegates and the party platforms. Let's get on to the caucuses themselves, though, and see how they work. 
During these descriptions, it might be helpful to look at Balabal's website, where I have a graphic there that might make it easier to follow along to see how the caucuses unfold. I'm going to start with the Republican caucus, because for the most part, they're a little bit more familiar to the average voter. So here we go. On Monday evening, on February 1st, 2016, Iowa Republicans will go to their local precincts to vote. There are over 1,700 precincts across the state. Some are in people's homes, local libraries, firehouses, or gymnasiums. Sometimes there are only a few people there. Sometimes there are hundreds. This is phase one. During this phase, a party chair heads the meeting and usually passes a hat around asking for donations to support the party. Then anyone who wants to make a brief speech can do so in order to persuade their fellow voters on who they're going to support. When the speeches are done, everyone gets a piece of paper, writes down their choice, and the votes are anonymously dropped into a ballot box. The party chair counts the votes and phones them into the state party office. Simple and easy. What could possibly go wrong? Phase two is the county convention, and this doesn't happen until March 12th. This is well after the New Hampshire primary happens, as well as many other states. By this point, many presidential candidates may have already gotten out of the race because they had bad results, all while the official result of the Iowa caucus hasn't been determined yet. The 99 Iowa counties vote on individual delegates to send to their district convention. They use the data from phase one as a guide, but can actually select anyone they want. Phase three happens on April 9th, now two months after the voters went to the precincts. The district convention corresponds to Iowa's four congressional districts. Each district gets to take the county delegates and chooses from them and to send on to the state convention. Phase four, and this is the last one, don't worry, is the state convention, and it happens on May 21st. That's 110 days after the voters went to their precincts. Here, the delegates select from the delegates from the districts, and they're joined by several party bigwigs, and Iowa finally has the 30 convention delegates it'll send on to the national convention in the summer. By now, the process is nearly complete. The 1,700 precincts sent their results to the 99 counties, who selected delegates to the four districts, who selected delegates to the one state convention. By then, Iowa Republicans' voices will have been heard, and all their delegates will support the chosen nominee. But there's a catch. The delegates actually get to support whoever they want. It doesn't actually matter who the people voted for back on caucus night. If you don't think that this is a potential issue, just realize that this happens a lot. We need to go back no further than the 2012 election for when the delegates decided to go it alone. If you remember back four years ago, Mitt Romney was the frontrunner, and he was trying to scare off the more conservative candidates like Newt Gingrich, Ron Paul, and the full Grassley himself, Rick Santorum. He was hoping a win in Iowa could put the rest of the field to bed. And on the night of the caucus, Republican, Republicans went to the precincts, and despite being a nail-biter, Romney got just what he wanted. The next day's New York Times headline reads, Romney wins Iowa caucus by eight votes. With over 120,000 votes cast, this was a razor-thin win, but a win nonetheless. Romney followed up the Iowa win with a strong win in New Hampshire, and eventually won 37 state primaries and caucuses. He became the Republican nominee, and the rest is history. The end. Only, the funny thing is, in the days following the caucus and the news coverage of the Romney win, the party released its certified results. This showed that Rick Santorum had actually won by 34 votes. Still a narrow margin, but a completely different winner. With 1,700 precincts, it had taken a while to get the results in, and adding to the confusion, eight Iowa precincts never re reported their results at all. We'll never know why this happened, because the Republican Party is a private organization and under no obligation to release an explanation. So, mistakes were made, Romney got credit for the win, and got some news coverage, while Santorum kind of got screwed. 
But this seems like a mistake that could be solved later on. By the time the state delegation got together, it would be easy for them to correct the mistake and make sure that Santorum got the most delegates in recognition of him, you know, getting the most votes. So let's fast forward to the Republican National Convention in the summer. The balloons are loaded up in the rafters and the speeches are happening on stage. Getting up to speak, Iowa Delegation Chairman Drew Ivers is about to announce the official delegate total that represents how who Iowa Republicans think should become president. Here's his quote. Madam Secretary, the great state of Iowa, the land between the Missouri and the Mississippi, the land that feeds millions of fellow Americans with our corn, beans, hogs, and cattle, the first in the nation caucus state that serves our political process by rewarding hard-working, liberty-loving candidates with delegates to this magnificent convention, Iowa casts 22 votes for Ron Paul and six votes for Mitt Romney. Wait a minute. Where'd Santorum go? He got the most votes during phase one of the caucus. He beat Romney. And Ron Paul finished third place. The explanation for this goes back to the Byzantine way the caucus evolves. The voters have their say in phase one. Then the county, district, and state conventions have their own chances to select delegates using the voters' wishes as a guide. Somewhere between the initial vote and the national convention, Ron Paul supporters were able to convince their fellow delegates to switch over to his side. Even though Paul only got 21% of the vote, on the night of the caucus, he was awarded almost 80% of the delegates. So, the Iowa caucus of 2012 was initially said to have been won by Romney, which helped him build momentum and win the nomination. Then Santorum was given his due a couple of days later, which helped him do nothing. Then Ron Paul's grassroots support network convinced the delegates to send a signal to the party establishment by handing Iowa to their libertarian hero. One contest, three different winners. Remember that Alice in Wonderland quote? At last the dodo said, Everybody has won, and all must have prizes. Confused yet? Well, we're just getting started. If the Republican caucus has your head swimming, just get ready for the Democrats. Let's go back to caucus night on February 1st. While the Republicans are gathering in their 1,700-odd precincts, casting their ballots on paper, the Democrats will be meeting in their own 1,700-odd precincts, doing something much more similar to the story of Alice and the Dodo. Their caucus involves some physicality. I'm going to use an imaginary scenario to describe how this caucus works. If you want a visual, you can go to Balaball's website to follow along. Imagine a gymnasium with 100 Democratic voters filing in. These 100 voters are going to determine how to select four delegates that will be sent to the county convention that happens later. So here we go. 30 boisterous Bernie Sanders supporters go to one end of the court and high-five each other. Meanwhile, 30 Hillary Clinton supporters go to the other side. 10 Martin O'Malley supporters shrug their shoulders and group together near the bleachers. The remaining 30 voters are undecided, and so they mill about at the center of the court, listening to the Clinton, Sanders, and O'Malley supporters imploring them to come over to their group. It's like a game of Red Rover you played as a kid, only the average age of people playing is probably about 50 years old. For our purposes, let's say that all the voters make up their minds. Remaining uncommitted is actually an option, but makes this example more complicated. So let's say that all the undecideds have chosen which group they want to join and left the center of the court to one of the candidates' groups. The party chair sees that everyone is ready and counts up the totals. Bernie Sanders is in the lead with 47, then Clinton with 40, and O'Malley with 13. But wait a second. There's a rule that I didn't tell you about yet. Any candidate with less than 15% of the vote is not considered viable and is eliminated. The 13 O'Malley supporters are forced back into the center of the gym and must choose between Clinton and Sanders. Once they do, it's added up again and we have a new leader. Now Clinton has 53, and Sanders has 47. But we're not done yet. Now we have to decide who gets the four delegates. This decision is left up to the party chairperson who is doing the counting. 
If it was a 50-50 tie, the choice would be easy. The Clinton and Sanders delegates, the Clinton and Sanders campaigns, both get two delegates each. They would choose among themselves who they thought would be trusted to go on to the county convention and be done with it. But it's not 50-50, it's 53-47. The party chair could decide to split them down the middle anyway, since the race was so close, or they could decide to reward Clinton for winning and give her three delegates, and Sanders only one. It's completely up to the party chairperson. With the delegates set, we're ready to repeat the same phases up the ladder toward the state convention as the Republicans. The 1700 precincts send their delegates to the 99 counties, who repeat the same game of Red Rover and send delegates to the four districts, who play Red Rover again and send the delegates to one state convention for the final game of Red Rover. This winnowing is particularly hard on lower-tier candidates like the O'Malley supporters in this example. Even though he has 13 supporters in the original precinct, he didn't get any delegates to move on to the next level. Now, any delegates he might have gotten elsewhere are weakened on the next stage and might get eliminated entirely if they're deemed non-viable. By the end of the county conventions, the district conventions, and the state conventions, the Democrats are ready to roll onto their national convention and make it official. I don't have any example of the Democratic caucus that had such a bizarre finish as the 2012 Republican one, which touted three different candidates as a winner, but the Democrats do have past instances where nobody won. Remember I said voters had the option to remain uncommitted rather than choosing a candidate? Well, that used to be far more common. In 1972 and 1976, the phantom uncommitted candidate trounced the Democratic field and won both years' primaries. Jimmy Carter, George McGovern, and even anti-war Vietnam candidate Eugene McCarthy all fell short against the undecided voters of those years. So now you know the topsy-turvy story of the Iowa caucuses. If you live in Iowa, good luck on February 1st. If you're a candidate, I wish you luck as well, or at least enough luck that if you win votes, you'll actually derive some benefit from them before the election is over. If you're interested in the predictive power of the Iowa caucuses, I have a couple of parting stats which you might find interesting. Since Iowa jumped to the front of the line in 1972, no president, Republican or Democrat, has ever been elected without finishing third place or higher at the caucus of their party. Individually, the Democratic caucus has had a better track record of choosing the eventual nominee. The last five caucuses have all been won by the candidate who eventually became the nominee, though two of those races involved uncontested current presidents running for their second term. The Republicans are in a bit of a cold patch, with the last two winners failing to win the nomination. However, prior to that, they had a stretch where they accurately predicted four or five contests. That does it for this episode. Thanks so much for everyone listening. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. Subscriptions are very important in order for the podcast to rise on the iTunes charts, so I'd really appreciate it if you took the time, even if you never listen to the show again. Feel free to email me at james.murphy at ballotball.com if you have any questions, and you can visit the website at www.ballotball.com to check into weekly stories that are posted there. Until next time, Seamus and I are wishing you all a happy new year, and don't forget to register to vote. Vote.